beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. Woohoo! Can you hear me? Hello. There you are. I can hear you now. Hi. Cheers. Cheers. I'm waiting on Yasmin. I'm so excited to do this. I don't know what I'm going to say. I'm not even sure what books I'm going to talk about. It's going to be a surprise. I I don't know that I have a top like five this year. It was a lot harder this year, I thought. Say more about that. Why? I think because I'm in a weird mood and I'm less decisive. I've also struggled a lot more to find things that I like this year. I think it's just like really bad quarantine brain. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, how are you guys? I like how Laura fixes her hair before recording a podcast. <laughs> Love me for who I am. to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. It's the best books of the year episode. I am so excited. Ladies, welcome, welcome back to 10 things to tell you. This is literally one of my favorite conversations of the whole entire year. And I can't believe that we get to have it together, except that I'm super sad that we're not in person. It's so sad to me that we are doing this over Zoom. That's what 2020 is. So here we are. We're going to do it. We're going to have a great conversation about the best books that we read this year. So everyone, this is my real life book club. We meet in real life 
There are currently only three of us. We're fine with it. A club is a club. And (laughs) I want us to just share who we are. Yasmin, please introduce yourself first to the listeners. Hi, I'm Yasmin Dunn, member of the Real Life Book Club for many years now. I am a mom. I am a reader. I work in Hollywood adjacent, but I am super happy to be here. It's really one of my most favorite things to do at the end of the year. So yay. Yay. It's just it marks the time for us, doesn't it? I love it so much. Okay, Stephanie, tell the listeners who you are. I'm Stephanie Newman-Smith. I also work in Hollywood. I work at a production company where I spend most of my day reading, which is great for me. And I'm also so glad to be back. I'm so glad we managed to make book club continue on Zoom because it was one of the things I missed most when we first went into quarantine. Okay. Well, I'm so glad you bring that up because I want us to just sort of start there for a minute. I've been asking every guest on the show this year about what their reading life has been in 2020 because of the pandemic, because our attention spans are different. I couldn't tell this year if, you know, publishing was affecting how I was feeling about the books of the year or if it was my own brain or mood. And so I would just love to hear from you both what your general reading life was like. Did you turn to old favorites? Did you turn to like easy reads? What did you do and how was your reading in 2020? Yasmin, you go first. You know, I started the year really strong with like all of these reading goals. And then when quarantine happened, my mind sort of just went crazy. So I did a lot of rereading things like my comfort read is like a good mystery novel. So I think I sort of blew through like all of Agatha Christie again, you know, and I like I did a lot of audible books because I would go on walks or like on drives to get out of the house. And so I did way more audible books than I normally do. So that was a big change. Once March hit, I started doing a lot of like the thrillers and the mysteries just to make sure that I wasn't losing my reader brain. Um, Because it was hard to pay attention to new books. So I had to read old books to like get back into reading. So I think probably by May, I was back to reading books, um, like new books. But I did did a lot of nonfiction. That's just where I was this year was like really wanting to read nonfiction and to really delve in. There were a lot of great books that came out this year and at the end of last year that I think really spoke to what's happening right now. And I was happy to be in that and to be reading that and to like share other people's thoughts on that. But I also just sort of stuck with nonfiction. I just, I read a lot of memoirs and I think once I got into like, oh, quarantine is going to last for a long time. I was like, all right, I'm just doing this now. Like, I'm just like, I want to be in reality and I want to read memoirs and I want to read what other people are saying. I just like experience life. Like instead of using books as an escapism, which I was doing in the beginning, I wanted to just kind of be really in the thick of it. So I agree with you on the nonfiction. I feel like my brain was just working on a certain track And it lent itself to a lot of nonfiction. I was listening to a lot more news, like in podcasts and, you know, even what I was reading online and that kind of thing. And so I couldn't concentrate on stories, on traditional stories, novels in the spring at all. And so I also was reading a lot of nonfiction. It was like the only way I could get through a book. Otherwise, I was just like, I don't know who the characters are. Like, I'm really having a hard time concentrating on this. And then I would say about midsummer, I 
evened out. Maybe because it had been a few months, we all sort of kind of were getting a little bit used to, unfortunately, what the world has become and quarantine and that kind of thing. And I would say about midsummer, I picked up a few different books. I, I read some novels that like made me realize, okay, I can concentrate on this again. And then probably from July until now, December, I've read at my normal pace and my normal mix of novels and nonfiction. But definitely there was a period in there from March to July where I just was not, my habits were all over the place. My concentration was all over the place. It was so hard to concentrate. And I don't have a comfort read. Like I don't go to romance or thrillers or I don't have like a genre or an author or anything where I'm like, oh, I'm really stressed out. I'm going to read XYZ. Like I don't really have that in my life. I have favorite authors and favorite genres, but like I don't have a comfort place in reading. Obviously we've never been in a pandemic before. So I've never thought like, what would I turn to if the world changed? Well, now we know it's a mess. I don't, I don't turn to anything. I'm just a crazy mess. So that's the, my no rhyme or reason answer for me. Stephanie, what was your reading life like? That's so funny because I have the exact opposite of you. I have lots of comfort reading and I read almost zero nonfiction this year. I was spending so much time reading the news, you know, multiple newspapers every day that I check out. And I was just like, my brain felt really overloaded. So what I like when I have that is like a good juicy novel. I will say that, especially at the beginning, although it kind of has come in waves, I feel like because I spend so much time reading for my job, I noticed that I was spending more hours reading and getting a lot less done. I read a lot slower this year than I usually do. Mm. I would find myself reading a chapter and realizing I couldn't remember what had happened and going back and constantly every time I was reading slightly backtracking in novels, which was really unusual for me. So I read mostly novels this year, but I kind of had that same issue where when I was making this list for the end of the year, it was a little bit harder than it normally is because I feel like I usually have so many standouts that I love that I have to kind of jockey for, for position and, you know, kind of a top five. And this year it wasn't so much. And I couldn't figure out if it was, you know, the books I just wasn't connecting with, if it was the publishing year, if it was my mood, which I think is probably a little bit more likely, but I did a little bit of that. And I did a, I did a fair amount of comfort reading for my own personal pleasure when I wasn't reading for work. So I would reread books I had in my house because I miss going to bookstores. So I just see what I had on my shelf. I reread some Curtis Sittenfeld, who I love, reread some of her novels. I reread Prep at the beginning of the year. I reread Persuasion this year, which is truly one of my very, very favorite books of all time. And I read some mysteries and thrillers and I will own up to it. I read a lot of really, really trashy chiclet. Like not romance novels, which really don't do it for me, but I mean like true chiclet. Like I reread Bridget Jones. This is the degree of my like appreciation of chiclet. Like it needs like true, true airport reads. They bring me great comfort. They last all of about an hour and a half, but I, I love them. So I've read a, a number of those. I'm not a huge rereader. I don't know that that would be comforting to me or not. I think it's interesting when I reread because when I am rereading, it's for a really particular purpose. Mm -hmm. I don't do it for comfort. So they're interesting, but I don't 
again, I don't turn to that. And I feel you on, it was a little bit harder to choose my best books of the year. I said this before we started recording, but I have some real standouts as in, I know my, my top books of the year. It wasn't that it was hard to choose of those I read, which were the top, but I guess I don't feel the level of enthusiasm for those top books that I have in previous years where I'm like so excited to talk about them and love them and obsessed with them. I feel like a little, even though they're they're great books, they're great and we're going to talk about them, but it's a bummer that we're coming to the end of this year and all emotions are muted a little bit. Like it's hard to just feel like this thing that I love reading and, and books even that has been affected to be like, yeah, it was fine. Like this was a solid showing Mm -hmm. instead of being like, oh my gosh, I love this book. You know, I mean, the, the attitude around it is just so different because of what we experienced this year. And that's just another thing that 2020 took from us a little bit is just like the joys. Like we have joy in reading usually or whatever. And now we're like, yeah, I can objectively see that this was a solid book, but I'm not like effusive about it, which isn't to say I'm, I love the books we're going to talk about today, but it definitely just, everything feels different at yeah, the end of my this year. Enthusiasm has definitely kind of been dampened in every kind of segment of my life. And I definitely also notice it in my reading. Yeah. Okay. So let's, before we share our favorite books, which we're each going to go around and share our favorite reads of the year. But first, I want to talk a little bit about our December book club read. Like here we are all together. This recording is taking place of what our traditional meeting would be. And I guess I should say for other people who are listening that are a part of book clubs, I don't know how other book clubs across the nation handled the pandemic or quarantine or whatever. I'm sure it's you know, varies from region to region, but Los Angeles went into pretty strict lockdown and we didn't meet for months. The longest that we've ever gone in several years of being in variations of a book club together. This is definitely the longest that we have gone without having a meeting. I don't know why we were like a little bit hesitant to do a Zoom meeting, maybe because we all work and are all Zooming in our regular life. I didn't, I didn't want that to be book club. And then when we finally did, we were like, all right, well, let's just meet. We don't have to have a a book. Let's just meet and talk about what we've read over the last few months or whatever. And I was so glad we did. And I was like, why didn't we do this earlier? Yeah. Me too. I think that it felt for me, at least like I was just zooming all day and it just felt like, oh, this is one more thing I have to do. And like, I wasn't Mm -hmm. sure if I was going to read or if I wanted to read. But also, I don't know if this happened to you guys, but like, I just sort of got really like insular. And I was just like, not really talking to a lot of people outside Mm -hmm. of my little family unit. I mean, at the time, for most of the year, I've had my parents here with me. And it just already felt like a lot of people. (laughs) So like, I didn't really, I mean, a lot of my friendships, I was like, oh, I'll text you. Like, I can't engage in a conversation because I'm engaging in conversations all day. And then there's no space, right? So like, Mm -hmm. for me, it was like, I can't even make space to be with the club or with my friends because all of my available space is taken by online school and then my parents and like just never having alone time so what normally is like a retreat where we are like at each other's homes and like 
we never have book club when like our husbands and other people are around. Like it's always just us. Mm-hmm. And I felt like we couldn't get that because mm-hmm. everybody was around all the time. And so I just was like, I don't, it didn't feel like it was going to be the same thing. Like book club for, I know for Stephanie too, we talk about this a lot is that like, it's just this sanctuary of like connection. And there's so much that like we share together, even just on a personal level, because we see each other every month, like that doesn't always get shared other places or mm-hmm. talk mm-hmm. about books that bring up emotions and things that we don't share with other people. So I just felt like it wasn't going to be that because it didn't feel as like sacred as it has been in the past, right? Like, I mean, for you guys who are listening, like our book clubs, like we kick our families out of our houses. (laughs) (laughs) We have this like two, three hour time that is just us talking Mm -hmm. about what we've read, how we experience things. And also just like what's happening in the larger world, you know, we have food and it's just such a like sacred little space that only belongs to us. And I really felt like, oh, I don't want to have book club if it's not going to be that. Like, I didn't want to do it with like my husband in the office and like my daughter knocking on the door and my parents being loud. Like it just, it didn't feel like it, it didn't feel right. Yeah. My kind of hesitancy earlier in the year was about my kind of issues with what I was reading, which is I was feeling like I was so overwhelmed with the reading I had to do for work. And I felt like there was constantly a pile, you know, that never gets short. And I was having a hard time with the notion that I was going to have to add another book every month on top of a pile that I didn't feel like I was making any headway through. But then, you know, when we had our last meeting, I forgot, and it, it was such a wonderful reminder of what a sense of kind of equilibrium that book club gives me. It has been such a constant in our lives for the last, for me, it's been five years and meeting, you know, once a month with the exceptions of summer, but I always leave feeling so refreshed and like, we, you know, it's emotionally cathartic, but it's also just fun to see you all and talk about the things that we love and our books and all of that. And I realized after we had that, I was in such a great mood And I was like, I've missed this so much. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't believe I was like, why didn't I, you know, why didn't we get it together? And we just weren't in the place for it earlier in the year. But I like feel so much better now that it's restarted. It's a testament to me that we knew sort of instinctively that this was a thing we could put on pause because we needed to and that we, we would be able to pick it back up when we were able. I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of friendships in my life have had some real ups and downs this year. Like I have friends who it's really important to them. They really need a lot of connection during this time. And so that takes a lot more effort than in regular life where you have to really foster that friendship because they need it or you know, you need it or whatever. And I have other friendships that have kind of fallen by the wayside because of this year and we weren't on the same page. And there's just been a sort of a lot of navigation in the relationships in my life. And I did not feel that about book club. Like mm-hmm. I actually, I missed it, but I actually was like, we can take a few months off. We're all going to be fine. Yeah. And we're going to circle back to this when it's time. Now, I think we we were hopeful that we wouldn't have to circle back on Zoom. I think we were like, let's just wait until we can get together. 
then of course, all of this went on longer than we were expecting. And so then we finally did a Zoom meeting after like six months. It took us a long time. But never for one minute did I think, is this going to be awkward? Are these ladies going to be mad that we haven't, you know, mm-hmm. touched base or whatever? No, I, I feel like we have this foundation of like, no, we're good. We're all independently good. And when we get back together, we're going to be good. Like it just yeah. felt, I just felt like it was such a testament of trust that we put it on pause. We picked back up. We're all doing the best we can. Everybody assumes good intentions of one another. There's no like weird, like I didn't hear from you for three months. Right. So right. The Best Books episode is brought to you by Ebby. Ebby is an underwear membership service founded by actress and entrepreneur Sofia Vergara. At Ebby, underwear is seen as a major source of power. Everyone wears undies, so why not put the absolute best on your body? Ebby's undies are seamless with a cotton lining, and the sizes range from extra small to 4X. There's also a no-slip grip, so you won't have any of those dreaded visible panty lines ever. These panties form to your body, so it feels like you have a second skin. So why a membership? Ebby's service keeps your underwear drawer fresh and new while empowering other women. That's right, 10% of every Ebby purchase helps fund microfinance loans for women around the world. Underwear is essential, and so is empowering other women. Undies and empowerment make the ultimate pair. When you choose Ebby, you choose to wear the best and help women out of poverty and into business. Go to joinebby.com and enter promo code THINGS20 to get 20% off your first order. That's joinebby, E-B-Y, Dot com and enter code THINGS2020 for 20% off your first order. And now back to the show. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about, we are going to share our best books of the year, but because we're all together, I want to do sort of a mini version of what we would do if the microphone wasn't on to share the book that we read for December. So we did meet over Zoom, non-recorded, um, a month or so ago, and we chose that our next book together that we would read would be A Burning by Mega Majumdar. And that's what we read. So let's just discuss this quickly. If anyone has thoughts on this one, let to just kick it off, does this land on anyone's favorites at, by the end of the year? No. I Not mean, for I, me. I didn't think it was bad, but it wasn't <laughs> like my favorite. I, you know, there were parts of it that I really got me emotional. Like I was, I will say this, I was emotionally invested in the characters, but I wasn't like blown away by the story, nor was I blown away by the writing, but I did want to kind of know what was going to happen with the characters. And I was invested. This book is right up our general alley Mm -hmm. in that it is foreign. There's a lot of buzz around it. It was a national book award long list. This feels like it would be one that we would generally sign on for. So I'm actually kind of finding it interesting that we're all like, meh. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think, Stephanie, about a burning? I mean, I had a little bit of a hard time getting into it in the beginning, partially because the since the book is from the perspective of three different characters, you are alternating between the three of them. And one of the characters is written in a different tense. I'm going to 
absolutely flub my high school English. I think it's the present progressive. <laughs> I could be I wrong. Mean, who knows? That in particular was a little bit hard for me to get into. And so I felt like I wasn't as immersed in the book for probably the first quarter of it. Oh, wow. And then I, yeah, it took me a while. I don't, and again, it's one of those things where like, I don't know if it was just my mood. I wasn't in the right vibe for it. And I did, I was like, Yasmin, I absolutely, eventually I got very invested in the characters. I wanted to know what was going to happen, but I didn't feel like I was on the edge of my seat. It's like, I enjoyed it. I was immersed in it, but I wasn't really blown away. And I was expecting to be. I was expecting to be too. I've read several of the Read with Jenna books. So there's so many popular national book clubs, you know, that are huge right now. Oprah, Reese. I mean, you know, there's all these. And Read with Jenna, Jenna Bush Hager is one of the more popular national book clubs that people are reading along with. And I personally, of all the national book clubs, have really connected to her picks more than some of the others. And I've read quite a few of the others. And so I I had high hopes for this book. It was also short. I also realized, and I don't know if this is just a taste thing or a timing thing, but that I had not read an overtly political novel in a long time. Obviously, a lot of novels that we read have some underlying political stuff or whatever, but this was an overtly political novel taking place in India. And I haven't read a book that is making such a heavy-handed point like Mm -hmm. this in a while. Sometimes I don't mind those. Sometimes they feel heavy-handed, which is what they are. I did think it was the most interesting part of a burning for me was of the three characters that they're following. And this is the story takes place after a terrorist attack in a train where a lot of people died. And then they're following the accused terrorist, they're following a teacher, and then they're following a, I'm not sure if this is the correct term for India, but in America, we might call this a transgender character who wants to be an actor. And all of these people play into sort of this bigger narrative that's happening with this terrorist attack. Or the most interesting thread of this story that I found was with the teacher who is sort of slowly being indoctrinated as a political pawn. And he doesn't necessarily know it. He sort of does figure it out as he goes. I don't feel like this is a spoiler to say this. I thought this was very interesting to see, oh, this is how this happens. Like how people are used by the government, how people are radicalized Mm -hmm. without them even necessarily knowing that they're being manipulated in this way. They think it's their own choice or their own you know, they're being led by the nose and they don't necessarily even understand that. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was very relevant to what's happening worldwide, but even in America right now. And so Mm -hmm. even though I was also invested in the other characters, that was the one that felt the most interesting to me of like, oh, this is, is this how this happens? You know, there's flattery involved and there's like trying to elevate your own station in life and and sort of a lot of those type of themes that maybe we see in Hamilton, which is like so popular, you know, to me, it felt that storyline felt like the most culmination of some other things that I've been reading and sort of thinking about. But in general, I agree with you guys that I wasn't blown away by this book. I thought it was, I could tell that it was good writing, like sort of objectively, I could tell that it was ambitious in what it was trying to do, but it just didn't like hit me 
Yeah. You know, it just didn't knock my socks off. And I kind of thought it was going to. When you have expectations, they're always needing to be adjusted. Right. But I also think it's a mood thing too. It was a lot. It was a lot like at the end of the year. I wonder if we had read it earlier, if we would have had a different reaction. But I hated her character so much. Like it just irritated me because he was just so opportunistic and so annoying. Like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like he was not understanding what was happening. Like I thought that he was like positioning himself to be like, oh, this is what I want to have happen. And he irritated the crap out of me. Yeah. It also felt to me, I mean, it's a book where like, to me, one of the messages is you have these different groups of people who are marginalized and the kind of system that is in place forces them to compete against each other and turn different marginalized groups against one another because the system is so in many ways, so broken. And while I thought the, that message itself is, is in, incredibly relevant, it's also a book where if you want to feel better about the world, this is not the book to read. It's so just hard to, to read and to also feel like, yeah, this does feel like what would happen. Yeah. And that's kind of horrifying. But you know what? Saying that is typically when we read books like this, similar to this in whatever vein, from whatever country, I think some version of, oh, isn't this interesting that this is happening in this other country? Like, mm-hmm. I definitely feel an Americanness about myself when I read books like this. Mm-hmm. And because of the time we're living in, when I read this, I was like, this is a universal story. <laughs> Yes. And I never would have thought that before. Truly, like, I definitely feel like I wear my Americanness all the time when I read foreign novels. Mm. And so it was actually fascinating to read a foreign novel and not feel that it was other and to Mm -hmm. feel like, oh, yeah, this is how all of this happens. Yeah. Yeah. That was like a real threshold to cross for me. That's interesting. Well, and I think too, because like one of the characters is makes choices to, you know, to achieve a level of professional success and fame and these things that people want. I think that part was very universal of like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this decision that might ruin other people, but it's gonna advance my career in my creative career. And, you know, I'll achieve a level of fame, even though I've done something. So I think that that theme was very universal. But that's interesting. That's interesting that, that that this was the book that did that for you. But I think, I mean, I think we all agreed, like, it was good. It just wasn't, like, fantastic, you know. Yeah. Which is rare. We never usually have that, actually, where all of us are like, eh. Usually there's someone who's like, this book is amazing. And, <laughs> and or this book is awful. Exactly. Um, there's always at least one outlier. <laughs> this is rare that we have like a consensus. Well, let's talk about books we did find to be fantastic. We each have a few that we're going to share. I'm going to be, you know, a little bit shorter with my words for most of what I'm going to share because I have talked about these throughout the year on the episodes of this show. And so, in fact, I'm going to start with a book that I haven't talked about yet and was a total surprise. I'm going to go first because that's the theme of this show. (laughs) Please let the record reflect that in normal book club life, I do not always command the go first. (laughs) 
position, <laughs> but here we are. Okay, so the book I want to share that is ending up in my top five of the year, and it was absolutely not, I did not start this book with any kind of expectation, which is probably why it ended up rising to the occasion. And that is The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. Have you guys read this one? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So this was a book of the month club pick. I bought it elsewhere, but I say that to say it was like a, a big popular novel that I saw from a lot of people and some people that I trust very much shared that they really loved it. Some of my dear friends were sharing that they loved it and I trust their taste, but still just looking at this from the outside, it's like kind of a, not time travel, but like sort of fantasy deal with the devil kind of story. I basically started this book as a palate cleanser. I read two books back to back that I did not love and actually was frustrated by. Those two novels were The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. (laughs) And then right after that, I read Anxious People by Frederick Mm. Bachman. And both of those books were all over Instagram and very popular. And I didn't connect to either of those books. In fact, I was frustrated by both of those novels. So when I started The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, it was more just like, this is sort of a palate cleanser. I've heard it's a good kind of bestseller, quickie read. I'm just going to read this. I was so surprised by this book. Now, I do love A Deal with the Devil, Meet You at the Crossroads, I'll trade my soul for talent. Like, I love those stories. <laughs> like, like Robert Johnson, Steve, is that his name? Robert Johnson? Yeah, sold a soul to the yeah. devil for the gift of song. Yeah. So Robert Johnson, <laughs> Stephen King, maybe, I don't know. Like, I love these stories. Like, I feel like there's like a strange element of truth to these stories. <laughs> I mean, nobody take me to the crossroads because I don't, I can't guarantee what's going to (laughs) happen. But anyway, in Addie LaRue, this gives nothing away. She makes a deal with the devil on her wedding day and she gives away her soul. And the price is that she sort of lives forever, but also she's invisible. No one ever, she's not invisible, um, like with your eyesight. She's like very forgettable. No one ever remembers her ever. That's the premise of the book. I feel like even when I say that premise out loud, I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, this is that type of book. (laughs) It's so much better than that. Like, I found myself really enjoying reading it. You know how you read those books where you're just like, I'm having so much fun reading this story. (laughs) That's how I felt when I was reading it because she lives a long time. And so she lives through different parts of history. And I just thought this was very, very cleverly done. I'm not going to give the rest of the plot away because I don't want to do that, but she stumbles across someone who doesn't forget her. And so then it sort of brings into question a lot of what identity is, what like the devil is and and what that trade is. If you were to make that kind of a trade for your soul and how binding that kind of commitment is. And I guess I thought this was just going to be like a sort of a cheesy bestseller fun, but whatever. And really, I ended up thinking as I was reading it, like, this is what novels 
what I often want novels to be. Like they make you think, but then they're also interesting. There's sort of a twist at the end, not like a weirdo, like that came out of nowhere twist, but just not, oh, like this isn't where I expected we were going. This is so satisfying that the author was so crafty about this. You know, it didn't, it didn't feel like pat or formulaic in any way. Now also y'all know this about me. I really suffer from the books I read at the end of the year end up being my favorite of the year just because I read them at the end of the year. Yep. (laughs) Every single solitary year this happens to me. (laughs) Yes. However, I will defend this one in particular because there were so few reading experiences this year where I just enjoyed myself. And this was one of them where uh, people who don't read a lot who think that reading is boring or a chore or whatever, I often think, well, they're just not reading the right stuff. However, I read a lot of things that are a little bit of a chore. I don't mind that because it's a thing I like to do. This book is where I'm like, oh, this is like the joy of reading. Like, it's just a great story. Everybody loves a deal with the devil. So that was The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. It's by V.E. Schwab, who's written numerous novels, but I haven't read any of her work before. I hadn't even heard of her before. I think maybe fantasy isn't on my radar as much, but now I want to because it was just so inventive, I felt like. That was my first one. Who wants to go next? Steph, why don't you go next with your first best book of the year? Sure. So my probably favorite book of this year was Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam, who I know Yasmin loved this book as well. Um, And you read it too, right, Laura? I read about this one. I talked about it on the episode with my friend Kara Pence. We both loved it, but I want to hear your take on it because again, this is like a weird pandemic read, honestly. This is a super weird pandemic read. and, And in some ways, I probably wouldn't have read it had I known that. I got the book many months before it was published. So I didn't really know what it was about. I got a logline that was basically, you know, a couple rents an Airbnb in the kind of wilderness on Long Island. And in the middle of the night, a couple knocks on the door purporting to be the owners. That is all I knew about this book. And then it turns out it's a little kind of painfully prescient about the world. You find out that there is something going on in the outside world and and you never totally know what it is. And I think we all have slightly different interpretations of what might have actually been happening. And you have these two couples, one who is kind of middle-aged and white, one who is older and black, having to come together And the book kind of shifts. Uh, The first, you know, third of the book is these two couples and there's kind of very weird interactions happening and a lot of like microaggressions and it's a very kind of tense relationship. And then it turns into this entirely different thing where these two couples and the children all have to kind of come together to figure out how to handle and survive whatever is happening in the outside world with almost no knowledge of what's happening other than something is going dreadfully wrong. There's a super large blackout in New York City, which instigates the initial incident. And then all of these other kind of weird and vaguely fantastical things start happening. I was so into this book and so uncomfortable by what was happening. And I just needed to race to the end 
to figure out kind of what the situation was. And I love that a lot of it is completely unanswered, which I was delighted by. And I feel like a lot of people are going to be absolutely infuriated by. This is not a book that gives you any easy answers, but I was just so blown away by it. You know, I had the, I had a very visceral reaction to it too. I think when we talked about this last time we met, we're like, I had to put it down because I was like physically reacting to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's because we're in the pandemic. I was like, oh my God, this is happening right now. Like I got like, <laughs> I like got afraid that like what was happening in the book was actually what was happening. And they're like, it was it was so close to home that it, I had to put it down. And like, I was really affected by it. Like just, you know, the whole unknown, like the sense of unknown and then this like underlying fear and then the parents trying to make things normal for the kids. It's very, it's rare that I have such a visceral reaction to a book, but it was like, I could, it was such a physical reaction. I had to put it down. And I just remember told my husband, I was like, oh my God, like, I don't think I can finish this book. Like, I feel sick. I will also say, if you want to feel better about the world, don't follow his Twitter. The author is a delight on Twitter. He's a writer for Slate frequently and other contributes to a lot of other places. But every once in a while, people will send him articles about things that are actually happening in the pandemic that mirror his book, and he'll retweet them. And that really freaked me out. I don't need that. But it was was extraordinarily well-written, though. And I think Mm -hmm. any book that can get... For all, for all of us to feel so much is, mm-hmm. is an exceptional book, I think. Did anyone read a children's Bible? You know, I started it and I didn't finish it, which is super rare for me. You know, it, it was on several of the book award lists. It was a National Book Award shortlist, I think. Mm-hmm. It has some similar elements in that it just felt too close to home. If I had read that book in another year, I probably would have felt like it was brilliant. Instead, Mm -hmm. I read it and I was like, you know what? This is too real. Did either of you read Emma Donahue's book, To the Stars? Mm-mm. It is about the the nineteen what is it nineteen seventeen flu epidemic. Oh, hi. Um, Why did you read that? <laughs> I picked it up for work because I thought I would check it out, and uh, I made it all of two chapters in, and I was like, "What am I doing?" Yeah. And I, I so I've read two chapters. I cannot tell you if it's a good book. I have absolutely no idea. I'm probably never going to read it. You know, a big book of the year was Lawrence Wright, who wrote The End of October which is about a global pandemic. And apparently that book is fantastic, but it's, you know, maybe just not what people are, were in, the, it was a bestseller, but in general, I think was maybe not what people are in the mood for, because I think that it, what he writes about is what we're living through, which is much like, what's that famous movie that everyone keeps talk, was talking Contagion. about? Contagion. It yeah. was like Contagion, where there are elements of this, of like how how these things are spread, how the government might react, what the denial process is like, like all of those things I think is also present. I did not read the end of October, even though I heard it was amazing. I still was like, I'm just not quite ready for the fictionalized version of what we're actually living. Yeah. I feel like there's two kinds of people in a pandemic. There's the people who watch Contagion and there's the people who watch You've Got Mail. And (laughs) like, I kind of feel like you're one or the other. I'm distinctly the You've Got Mail category. Um, (laughs) With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. 
Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, com and use code U, Y-O-U. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. Okay, Yasmin, what is your first book that you want to share with us that is one of the your favorites of the year? So I read very early in the year this great book called Uncanny Valley, and it's by a woman named Anna Weiner. Weiner. So Uncanny Valley is so great. It's about Silicon Valley, but I really love her perspective because she's like this liberal arts major who comes out of college and doesn't really quite know what she wants to do. And so she ends up getting this job at a, like a book app sort of, I don't know, I don't know how to explain the app, but it's sort of like a, it's an app that was geared toward readers basically. And so they hire her because she's super into reading and she was like not happy at her editing job. Um, And so then she just sort of gets like immersed in the world of tech and goes from this job that doesn't quite work out to another really big job at a really sizable tech company. And what I love that she does is like, she never names the companies, but she'll say like, you know, the company with the Octopus logo or the social media site that everyone hates, you know, refer, re, you know, referencing Facebook. So this is memoir, right? It is a memoir. But, okay. you know, she obviously can't say the names of these companies. So she um, she says she's found a creative way to get around that. But it's a really good 
look inside of the world, like the tech world, right? In Silicon Valley from an outsider's perspective, which is why I really like it. Because she starts to sort of realize like how much power these companies have and how much power she has being a worker in these in these companies, how much access she has to private information and <laughs> how much stuff is shared and how people just like blindly give so much information to these tech companies that actually have people behind them. And so I thought it was, it was really an interesting exploration in terms of how she just sort of starts taking this job and then starts to realize what is happening behind the scenes and how much we have given over to these huge tech companies in terms of giving away our information and how we rely so much on them in a way that we didn't before. So what I like about it is that it's a tech memoir, but she is not of the tech world, right? So she's she's a writer, she's a reader, she's like us, but she gives you this sort of like inside look into what is happening. And this thing that like is so nebulous that we don't, we rely on it, but we don't understand it at all. And it reminds me a lot of Michael Lewis. I don't know if you guys know Michael Lewis when he wrote Liar's Poker, which was when he was working at Lehman Brothers. But he was also like a liberal arts kid who sort of took this job at Lehman Brothers, you know, ostensibly to just try and make some money. But then he ended up writing about it and like starting his career. And she is doing that too. It's sort of like writing her way out of this really dysfunctional environment and writing as a way to make sense of all of this stuff that she doesn't quite understand, but it's this big power But I also like the inside look in terms of just like how much money is given out and thrown around so easily, you know, just for ideas, right? So this first company that she works for, like they give her a great salary, but they don't actually even exist as a company yet, which happens all the time in tech, right? Like you get these unicorn companies that just get so much money from venture capitalists and they're really just nothing but an idea, but then they have billions of dollars and they hire a bunch of staff and they do all sorts of fun stuff, but there's no product, like nothing exists yet. And I think we've all just gotten so used to this way of functioning that like these VCs can just give money to random companies. It's a little bit like the show Silicon Valley, right? That like gives you that inside look of how just random people can become billionaires overnight for an idea and not actually a thing. But what I really liked is that it's just her take on it and her experience of sort of going through it. And like she goes through the whole arc, right? Of like she gets she gets promoted to bigger companies and starts making more money, but she starts losing herself. And it, then she starts becoming part of this world that she was never meant to be a part of. And it's just how quickly it happens, like how she goes from being this like New York editor girl to like wearing a hoodie and jeans, like walking around in San Francisco with her laptop. And like, you know, like she realizes like how quickly she just assimilated into this world. But I also like that, you know, it's a female perspective in this really like bro centric world. And I think that doesn't get talked about enough in the larger world of like how, I mean, we talk about it, but I don't think we've seen, this was the first time that I've like seen an experience of a female in this world of like programmers and just the Silicon Valley men, right? And it's super compelling. Like you wouldn't think that like this younger woman's story of 
basically just like going through early jobs in her career would be interesting, but she has such a good take on what happens in the community and then how she becomes a part of it and how she realizes what she doesn't want to be. I bought that book on Kindle sale a few weeks ago because it ended up on a lot of, of best of the year lists. You know, some of the big outlets, New York Times and whatever, they publish their lists at the beginning of December, mm-hmm. which I understand why they do that. But also like December is a month we can read. <laughs> yeah, I'm like hesitant to even have this conversation mid-December. I'll probably po- publish a bonus episode at the end of December because I plan to read several more books by the time the year ticks to done. But anyway... I saw that Uncanny Valley, which is the book you're talking about, ended up on a bunch of these lists for the end of the year. So I did buy it on Kindle and I love, I love a good memoir. I actually listened to it on Audible because it came out in the beginning of the year and I was like, I have an incredibly long commute. So I was listening to it, you know, on my commute and it was just, it was just riveting. Like I really, and I'm not, again, like I'm not normally an audible person, but given that the amount of time I was in the car at the beginning of the year, like it really made things interesting for me, but I, I really enjoyed it. And I thought it was just really insightful, particularly because she was young. I tend to not love memoirs by people who are younger, (laughs) like, but I felt like she had a lot to say about this really time specific period in her life, right? Not just her age, but also like what's happening with tech. I'm going to go next and I'm going to cheat. I know we're only on round two and I'm already cheating, but I've talked about this a lot on the show and already on social media a lot. So I'm kind of going to give my two favorite books of the year as one entry without giving a ton of words to either of them that are repetitive. But because I really want to highlight, these were my two favorite novels of the year and they are total standouts. I don't feel like anything came close necessarily when I was choosing my favorite books of the year. There's a lot of ways you can think about your favorite books of the year, depending on like, like I already talked about with Addie LaRue, like just enjoyable experience versus also like quality reads, you know, learn something kind of reads that kind of way. There's a a million ways you can sort of categorize your five-star reads or your favorite reads of the year. But for me, these two novels were my favorite books of the year for fiction. Nothing really came close, just in, in quality And those two were Deacon King Kong by James McBride and Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. So first of all, Deacon King Kong, did either of y'all read that? Yeah. Okay. So I don't remember why I originally bought this. I know exactly where I was when I read it. It was an Oprah book club book of the month pick. And I often like her picks. I think that she is mindful of of what she chooses and pointing her audience towards a certain point of view or author or genre. But I believe, and I hope I don't get this wrong, but I believe it was a pick for her like in March when the world was falling apart. (laughs) So in some ways it kind of got missed by the normal masses that would flock to any kind of Oprah book club, especially after, and we haven't even touched on this yet, but especially after she chose very early in the year, American Dirt to be her book club pick in January, which was extremely controversial. I mean, she did a two-part series on Apple TV. (laughs) (laughs) To make up for it. (laughs) To make up for it. And I've also already given a lot of words to that. I felt that book was fine, but not amazing. I thought 
that the controversy was actually more interesting than the book itself and sort of the discussions that cropped up around American Dirt. And so I think Oprah's book club was in sort of a strangely precarious position, if you can ever call anything Oprah does precarious, which you can't really. But anyway, when she chose Deacon King Kong, I feel like it got it got missed a little bit from the a type of attention that her book club picks would normally get. I didn't even know that it had been chosen, nor did I pick it up until July. And it was definitely one of the books that brought me out of the pandemic quarantine reading slump because I bought it on Kindle. I started it with not low expectations by any means. I did not know much about James McBride. I didn't know anything about it. I just was like, oh, someone had recommended it, Oprah, whatever, click purchase. I started reading it and I was like, hold on a minute. Okay. Y'all, James McBride, why didn't somebody tell me? He's amazing. He he wrote my probably favorite memoir I've ever read, which is The Color of Water. Yeah. Which I'm going to read in January. I'm prioritizing in January backlist titles from authors that I've recently fallen in love with in the last few years. I'm reading all backlist in January. That memoir is top of the list because Deacon King Kong is a new level, folks. Like I was literally like, what is this? I felt like no one had ever told me about James McBride. He writes about like very hard subjects, but he's like hilarious about it. Like it's like a light read, but effortlessly light. Not like you're trying to, not like SNL, like satire about a serious situation. Not like that. Like actually funny and heartfelt and it reads like a sing song almost the the way he has named characters which i know is is steeped in the kind of culture he comes from and in brooklyn the projects and how they give all nicknames to everyone and like i know that part of that is cultural but i was also just like reading it and being like this is a song. Like, I just was like so blown away by it. I felt like I have been robbed of years of James McBride. (laughs) (laughs) I loved this book so much, but it also had some very classic novel devices to it. So like, there's kind of like a mob situation happening. There's some of these other things that are, I don't want to say quote unquote normal, but just like sort of normal things that pop up in novels, right? So it was almost like I was reading, again, a quote unquote sort of normal novel, but done at this totally other level. It wasn't like he was reinventing the wheel with some whole new way to write or anything. I just had not read an author like him in a long time. It was the first time that I felt like this is a whole different thing, everybody. Stop down for James McBride. I loved it so much. And then I'm also going to take up my turn to also talk about Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell because there was a little bit of the same. Now, I don't feel like it was the same level of uniqueness to Hamnet that, that I found in Deacon King Kong where I felt like I encountered a whole new level of writing. That necessarily wasn't present in Hamnet, but it is in my top two favorite novels of the year, because I wasn't excited about it when I started it. It's sort of a fictionalized version of Shakespeare's family. I don't know much about Shakespeare's personal life at all, but I was like, this is like one of those novels that you're supposed to read because it's like beautiful and like (laughs) 
people love Maggie O'Farrell. Like, I just was like, this is a novel I'm supposed to read this fall kind of idea. And then I read it and, you know, before I'm halfway through, I'm like, oh, oh, this is really beautiful. And as you both know, I'm not attracted to novels that can be described as beautiful. I don't (laughs) like flowery. I don't like poetry. (laughs) I don't like beauty. Is that a weird I do, but like, it's just, I like, I just tend towards darker, grittier, beauty just isn't my thing. I mean, your favorite author is Stephen King. That's right. And (laughs) it's just beauty. I'm like, I can appreciate that. It's just like classical music. Like you can see that there's like a lot of genius to that. And that's amazing. But like, that's not what I'm going to choose to put on kind of that sort of idea. Like Mm -hmm. beauty is just not my thing. And when I'm choosing to read Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, is beautiful. And I also loved it. There's a darkness to it. There's a sadness to it. I had never pictured Shakespeare as just like a flawed man who had a family, which he did ostensibly. There's a lot of theories that Shakespeare wasn't a single person. I do love a conspiracy theory. But anyway, (laughs) I don't want to digress into all of that. But I just, you know, you don't think about Shakespeare as like a dad whose kid dies. That's not a spoiler. Hamnet, which is a name that can also be sort of interchangeably used with the name Hamlet, is thought to be Shakespeare's son who died. And then he wrote his most well-known work, probably, which is Hamlet. All of this is fictionalized, but to imagine that there's even a touch of reality into this... I just thought it was so well done. And I think there's something to be said. If you can convert someone like me to this beautiful novel, that that's like, it is like worth mentioning as in my top of the year, because we talked about being blown away or not blown away. I was absolutely blown away by Hamnet, mainly because it's not my typical kind of vibe. And it's absolutely gorgeous. You guys haven't read it, right? No, No, but you told us about it at last book club. So I went out and bought myself a copy, which is what I will be doing when I'm on vacation starting next week. (laughs) Okay, Steph, I don't know that it's a vacay read. (laughs) I don't have that much time other than vacation to read what I feel like. So it's going to have to be a vacation read. And I'll be curious to hear what you think about it because I don't know, I feel like we keep coming back to a couple of different themes, one of them being expectations or not. And I guess it's one of my favorite things when I have low expectations and a book super surprises me. That's like a joy in life, actually. It's so much better than when you have like high expectations and a book disappoints you. (laughs) Yes. Okay, Steph, you're up. So my next favorite book is called Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, which is a little bit of a cheat for this year because it has been published in Australia. And I did check, you can get it shipped to you, but it does not come out in the United States until February. But I would be hesitant not to talk about this book. It just absolutely blew me away. It is kind of an interesting story. It's about a woman named Martha. You follow her from her adolescence through kind of when she turns about 40. And the thing that you learn very early on is that Martha suffers from an undiagnosed mental illness. And the book is about her kind of learning to navigate this mental illness, eventually kind of getting help, but all through the prism of her relationships, 
Um, in the adolescence part, it's mostly her relationships with her family, which are incredibly impacted by her own mental illness. And then you kind of find out that that has kind of runs in the family. And then the large chunk of the book is about her relationship with a friend and ultimately her husband when they get married many years later and tracks them through their marriage. It's done in a non-linear style. So the book opens with her husband leaving her and you kind of have to follow this character as she gets her life under control and she has to learn to separate what parts of the problems and the fractures in her relationship are due to her mental illness and how much of it is just her and kind of not using that as an excuse for treating people badly. It's really sad and also so funny. I laughed out. There's a one point where I was like cackling at this book. I thought it was great. It's, I think tonally, there's not a lot of books I would necessarily compare it to, but if you watched Fleabag and you liked that show, that's what this feels like to me, at least. It feels you know, I, like- I was obsessed with Fleabag. Oh, like obsessed. It's a, a weird perfect, level. perfect television show. There's not one thing that could be made better about that show. I thought season one was perfect, and then season two was somehow better, and I truly don't even know how that's possible. This character feels kind of like Fleabag, where she has all these intense kind of things going on in her life, and her coping mechanism is humor. There is a part where she and her husband are moving houses, and she labels every single box miscellaneous, and I, that just, I don't know why that struck me as so incredibly funny. But just the idea of her and her like poor husband unpacking like dozens of boxes, all labeled miscellaneous. And I was just like, I love this woman. This is great. And it has a really cathartic ending, but it also doesn't try to make it easy. You know, she does kind of get her, you know, her mental health under control, but at no point does it let her off the hook for her own behavior, which I really appreciated. What's the name of it again? It's called Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. So we have to pre-order that. You should pre-order it. It comes out, I think, on February 9th. I believe the author is British, although I don't know for sure. The book does take place in London, primarily. You had me at Fleabag because season two of Fleabag, I feel like, changed my whole life. Uh, Absolutely. Yasmin, share with us your next favorite book of the year. Can I do two together because they're similar thematically? You can because I set the rules and I feel like that's fine. Okay. So the first one that I did so many memoirs, you guys. So one of the memoirs I read this year is a book called The Beauty in the Breaking by Michelle Harper, who is a um, Black woman doctor who an ER doctor and so she talks about her experiences as a Black woman. She went to Harvard And she talks about, you know, her experiences as a Black woman in the medical field. Um, And there's so much there, just that. But she also talks a lot about, like, her trauma and growing up in an abusive household and how that sort of led her to medicine and to wanting to be there for people and wanting to help fix people. So it's just a beautiful book. I bring it up because I think there's so much systemic racism in the medical field. And like, and I can speak to this as a woman of color who has been like misdiagnosed a gazillion times and have had 
plenty of doctors not believe me when I say that I'm in pain or, you know, so it's interesting to get her perspective as a black female doctor and her experiences. But what I love about it is it's like, it's, it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful memoir that really reflects on just like the trauma and pain that you see in everyday life. And just her experience growing up in this really violent household. Like it's interesting because she, you know, she comes from a sort of affluent family in DC, but they have a lot of this just, just constant violence, like just abuse and domestic violence. And they have to hide all of it. And they're very secretive about it. And just how that shaped her as a person who not only wanted to help people who were in pain and in crisis, but it gives her this level of empathy as a doctor that not a lot of people have. And I think that's what's so special about this book is like she really focuses on the connections that she makes with patients rather than just the medicine, but like she sees them as people. And I've read other medical memoirs where people are, where it's different. Like it's not so much about like the connection with the people, but it's more about the process. But she really... Actually, yeah, she just really focuses on like the connection that she has with people that she's meeting, like ostensibly on the worst day of their lives, right? Like you're not in the ER on a good day. (laughs) So, and she just recently wrote an article for Medium about being an ER doctor during COVID. And that's also extremely well-written and insightful, but also, you know, really deals with her, like the empathy fatigue almost that, you know, that happens when you are a good doctor. So it's a really, it's a really, really exceptional book. We don't hear that voice a lot. Like there are not a lot of black women doctors who are publishing books. Right. And so I think it's just, it's such a good perspective to have because she doesn't actually talk too much about like what it was like being a black woman at Harvard, but you know, her experiences are there, but that's not what the book is about. The book is about her empathy and her connection with these patients and like it's just a beautiful book so that leads me to my other book which is a memoir as well but also with the same themes of domestic violence this is a book called in the dream house by carmen marie machado this is the first book i have ever read that deals with like a domestic violence in a same-sex couple and they're they're in a lesbian couple and what's so interesting is that like she even speaks to that, that like, there's no language for her to even process what that means to be in a gay relationship and also experiencing domestic violence. Like there's not, we don't really talk about it. And you know, as you know, I used to be a domestic violence advocate and would answer the hotline and we would do a lot of training on the fact that like domestic violence does happen with same-sex couples, but it's just never portrayed anywhere. (laughs) Like we don't see it very often and there isn't a lot of language to talk about it. So what I love about this book is that she recognizes that this is, she doesn't quite know how to process this. So the not the memoir is like in itself, just a mishmash of genres. Like she, She has like an epigraph and then a dedication and then another epigraph. And then each chapter is like this little vignette. And it's sort of like, it's called in the dream house. So each chapter is like the dream house as, and it'll be like the dream house as noir. And then she'll sort of have like that theme while she's exploring or the dream house as, you know, a song and we'll show explore lyrics song lyrics and how they have to do with the domestic violence. And so it's just like, she just uses all these different lenses 
And so just from a purely like stylistic point of view, it's so intriguing because she, it doesn't fit into any genre. It is memoir, but it's also done in these little vignettes that are so different, like thematically and even structurally. But I just think she does such a good job of tackling such a complex subject with complexity. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, it's like, it's beautiful the way she weaves things together. And then you feel like you're processing that relationship along with her in terms of like, oh, well, this started out okay, but then this happened. And like, is that even weird? Like, should I, should I be concerned about this? And it just really shines a light on how complex interpersonal violence can be and how confusing it is. And then when you have, on top of that, being part of a marginalized population, you know, she's a Latina, lesbian, like it makes it even harder to understand what's happening. And she's in an interracial relationship. So there's just like layers upon layers of complexity. And then she writes this memoir that is so incredibly complex and beautiful and sad, but like you feel like the way it's constructed, you really feel confused along with her which I think is something that doesn't happen. And a lot, like a lot of memoirs or novels when we're discussing domestic violence or rape or these things, it's sort of from an outsider's perspective of like, oh, this happened to this person or, you know, or it's like a clinical observation, but this is like, you're in it with her and and you are confused. And it's just, it, the whole memoir is sort of disorienting because it switches styles. And, but like of everything I've read, and I've read a lot about this, like this is one of the only memoirs that like felt to me like it actually captured the just the crazy of being in an abusive relationship. It's called In the Dream House by Carmen Machado. Okay, it's my turn again. And, you know, I made this list of my favorite books of the year and I didn't even know which ones I was going to talk about <laughs> on this recording because there's good stuff on here. I'm just trying to figure out which books that I really want to highlight for people for the best books of the year. And so I'm just going to go with the next most important one to me, which was Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. This book falls under the category of books that one should read. I've tried now for several years to broaden my education around race in this country and read different perspectives from people of color and read about history in a different way than I was taught it. And, you know, I've been pretty deliberate about those things, which is why I pre-ordered this book before it even came out because I knew it was going to be important, especially in light of the many changes our country saw with George Floyd's death this summer and then the protests that happened after that. So I really wanted to prioritize reading books like this. However, the truth of it is, I kind of felt like it was going to be a chore to read a book like this. There's already so much heaviness in the world. You know, I wanted to read it because this personal education is important to me, but it wasn't a book I cracked open like with enthusiasm. And then I started reading it and I was like, this is fascinating. She makes this really difficult history completely interesting. It's not like a textbook. It's obviously depressing and hard things to read, like in content, but the way that she writes it, and, and this is in contrast to a lot of different things I've read on this same topic, of course, 
And by that same topic, I mean, if you're unfamiliar with this book, race and bias and some terrible things that have happened in American history, she's really comparing it to India's caste system, which is obviously generationally older than America is, but she is contrasting it in that we have our own version of a caste system here in America that we are able to judge on people immediately by the color of their skin or the way they speak or any of the other ways that India also categorizes humans into different tiers of worthiness of of humanity and that America has its own version of that. But even as I'm explaining that now, the, the way that I'm saying it even isn't as interesting or compelling as the way that Isabel Wilkerson explains it, where I did not come away as a white person reading this book. I didn't come away and feel shamed. I mean, I felt like horrified because these stories are horrifying, but this book is not boring like a textbook and nor is it wagging a finger like shame on you that got us here or nor is it all of these ways that I felt like it could have been justifiably written. Instead, it was just absolutely an education that was also things that I didn't know, even having read a lot of this stuff in the last few years about slavery and the civil rights movement. And then some of these other tent poles of when, when you're talking about race in America, like I've, I've read quite a bit of this in the last few years and I learned so much from cast. I felt like she was taking some of these subjects that Maybe some people are, as the bias conversation goes on in America, might be feeling like, okay, I've learned all this already, or I'm fatigued by this conversation. She completely makes it so relevant and interesting and highlights these different parts of it that are not always shared. She shares other people's stories. Her writing has such a light hand she packs so much into one chapter, but you don't close it and feel like I have to take a nap now, or I can't return to this for two weeks or some kind of thing. Like I kept wanting to read it. Like I was like, this is, I didn't even know any of this. And, you know, I'm not the tone police on this topic. Obviously I don't want to misstate, you know, what the tone should be on this topic. I'm not, I'm not saying what it should or shouldn't be. What I'm saying is I feel like people might see this book and feel like, ugh, I'm not in the mood for that. And you're wrong. It is so well done. You will learn so much from it. And it's compelling. It's like a page turner, you know, which I think I was completely not expecting on a book like this, which, which is, you know, with a lot of hard stories in it. And for me, I felt like it took some of the broad strokes of things that we are learning and put really specific stories on it. So you can talk about lynchings, the KKK, really hard, hard things to read about. And I feel like there may be a handful of stories when you're talking about that, that you sort of hear over and over again. And she took really specific other things that I didn't know that put faces on these stories, like made it really real for me instead of making it like, and then this happened and it was hard and then this happened and it was hard, you know, like it just just made it so real. 
And I just can't say enough about this book. It was my favorite nonfiction of the whole year, cast by Isabel Wilkerson. I want everyone to read it. It is not a hard read. The topic is hard again. She just has a gift in the way that she's able to write. But now we're going to move back to novels because Stephanie doesn't read nonfiction. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's not not true. Y'all know that I love to play games on my phone to unwind, and I am always looking for a new one to download. And I recently ran across Two Dots, and I want to tell you about it. Two Dots is a free-to-download puzzle-based game that involves connecting dots through relaxing puzzles while unlocking levels and collecting prizes along the way. There are different gameplay modes to make the experience unique and exciting with every single puzzle. There are over five thousand distinct puzzles with various power-ups and special dots ready to earn as you move through the levels. The in-app music and visually stimulating interface provide a soothing experience when you just want to relax and unwind. Not only is Two Dots free to download, but it can also be played without internet connection. So playing on the go offline is a breeze. And if you don't want to play alone, you can challenge your friends on Facebook as well as connect with the larger Two Dots community for even more engagement. If you're looking for the perfect game to help you relax but also keep you engaged, download Two Dots for free on Android and iOS. So my next novel, as is my type, I read a book called The Red Shirt by Corey Sobel, which was a little bit of an unusual book for me because it's about football. And I don't know anything about football. It is a book about a young man who uh, is going into college and all he wants in the world is to play football for a D1 team. And he is gay and closeted. And he kind of at the end of high school, it is clear that his high school coach knows that he is gay and tells him if you want to play and does not directly say this, but alludes to the idea that if you want to play D1 college football, you can never come out. And all of this kid likes is football. It is his whole reason for living. And so he goes to this college. It's not a real university, but he goes to this college and he gets paired up with another football player who hates playing, but is spectacular. It's like all American football kid. And you have this kind of relationship between these two young men as they're progressing through college, it's almost entirely their freshman and then a little bit into their sophomore year of college. And you have the one kid who is playing for reasons that are incredibly complicated, despite the fact that he doesn't particularly like the game. And you have this other kid who wants nothing more than to play football. And the book is, you know, sometimes you hear stories about like the TV show, Friday Night Lights. It's not really about football. This book is about football. It very much is. I learned a lot about football from this book, but the relationship between the two young men is incredibly interesting, as is the main character, Miles, and his kind of relationship with his teammates, his drive for the sport. It's not always an easy book to read. I mean, as you can imagine, a book about a closeted young man in an environment that is casually homophobic to a shocking degree. It's hard to read. In some ways, it almost feels like a horror book or movie because you're just waiting for this kid to get outed and hoping that it will never happen. And on the same time, you know, hoping that he is going to be able to live 
a more genuine life because clearly being closeted is incredibly painful. And so it's kind of these dueling notions. And what I really appreciated about the book is that it treats this character with such care. It doesn't judge him for what he wants, whether that's to be a football player. It also doesn't judge him for being closeted, which is clearly incredibly painful. And it kind of takes him where he is. And it's not a book that I normally, I think, would have picked up. There's basically no women in the book, which is a little bit unusual for me. And this is an entirely male kind of football team, all of his friends, all of his experiences, his kind of closeted relationships. So that was a little bit different for me. Also, having spent no time in all male environments, despite the fact that I work in and have worked in some, you know, a male dominated industry. Like I've never experienced what that's like. And the kind of casual homophobia was really, really surprising and also felt incredibly realistic, which is incredibly sad. I found it really, really affecting. You really, really root for this kid and you want him to get everything he wants. And you know, at the same time, it's not really possible for him. So I really, really recommend it. The Red Shirt by Corey Sobel. This is such an unusual pick for you, Steph. It's an incredibly unusual pick for me. Uh, It wasn't for work. I was like bored and goofing around on Goodreads one day and someone (laughs) recommended it. And I was like, you know, that actually sounds kind of interesting. It's not usually what I read. The football stuff, I will totally own up to like Googling several things. I'm like this, I don't know what any of this means. I'll figure it out. Um, I mean, what are these words? (laughs) Yeah, like you can pick it up from context clues, but also like I had no idea. And like a lot of the book is about like working out and gaining weight and like drills that I know nothing about. It doesn't shy away from that. It is very much about this particular subculture of what it is like to play college football. It came out this year? It came out a few months ago. Um, I think maybe October. It got almost no press. So I don't know if anyone else has read it aside from me and the one dude on Goodreads. (laughs) Whoever you are, my friend, like, well done. (laughs) I like this. We took a real weird turn that Steph, (laughs) the ultra feminist, is like talking about the gay football book. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's me. (laughs) I'm into it. I'm into it. It's a left field choice for me to be sure. Okay. Yasmin, what do you want to talk about next? Is this our last round? Yeah. How long have we been talking? Like two hours plus. But okay. So I'm going to do two again. You are such a cheater. Yasmin. You're such a cheater. (laughs) Well, they're not even thematically connected. So maybe I won't. Okay. So the first one is the vanishing half by Britt Bennett. This is her second book. Her first book was The Mothers, which we read in book club many years ago. And I really enjoyed this book. I absolutely love. I love it so much. So The Vanishing Half is, it's about twins. It's about, it's about being light-skinned. It's about colorism in the Black community. It's about Louisiana. It's about your, like, discovering your identity. So this, like, there's a part this is not a spoiler it's in all of the reviews but there's a there's a character in the book who is passing as a white person and there's been a couple of really at least for me like books that I have that have really resonated with me about this concept of passing and one of them is a book called Passing by Nella Larson and this book reminded me very much of that it does a really good job of talking about 
identity, about sisterhood, about twins, about like missing a portion of yourself about, but also just like what I love about Britt Bennett is that she sort of just explains or explores like the what happens if, right? Like, so these people make these small choices early on and then it has this like massive impact generations away, right? And I think that she does a really good job of, you know, exploring how one decision has affected families through generations and like the daughters of these twins and what they think about. And also they live in this town that was founded by their great, great grandfather who, you know, wanted to create a town for light skinned black people. And like, what does that do? You know, what are the ramifications of that decision? So as a light skinned black person, there was a lot in this book that I understood and that I have seen in my life. And I've known people who have passed as something other than Black. And I think it's it's just an interesting choice. It's something I think about with my daughter, who could probably very easily pass as not being um, Black and, you know, Latina, which she is. But so it really, it really just explores that, like, what happens if you make this choice? And it reminds me of, there's an episode of this amazing show that everyone should watch called Lovecraft Country on HBO. Um, (laughs) But there's an episode of Lovecraft Country where the Black character gets to become a white woman. And she does all of these things that, like, you cannot do as a dark-skinned Black person. Like, she goes shopping and she gets a job at a makeup counter and like does all of these things that were just unheard of for a dark skinned black person in the sixties. And so this book made me think about that, that like, obviously I would never want to pass, but you see in this book and in other books about this concept of like the, the why, right? Like if something is so close to you, but like you can't access it, like how infuriating it is and how you can just tell one lie like one day and pass as a white person and have all of that privilege and all of that experience. And then like, why wouldn't you want to keep doing it? You know, like when it's, I mean, I know why I wouldn't, but I can, I can see that like, once you get the experience of being recognized as a white person and having all of this just innate privilege, it's a very difficult thing to to say, okay, well, I'm just going to go back to where I don't have that. So it's a really in- interesting exploration, you know, and then later on down the line, there's like, there are children who are darker skinned and that has a whole thing. But I, I think it's a, it was a really good exploration of colorism um, because it's not something that I think, I don't know if white people understand that or not, but like I came late to the game as a light skinned person in terms of understanding the impact of colorism and how much I have benefited from being a light-skinned person with what's called like good hair. So it's always interesting for me to read things that address colorism because I, just in the same way that white people need to be educated about the Black American experience, I, as a light-skinned Black person, need to be educated about what it's like to be a darker-skinned Black person and, and understand that I have an enormous amount of privilege that they don't have it's just a compelling subject for me. And I think it's something that more people should understand um, because it's my duty as a light-skinned person to open the door for, for darker-skinned people and say, you know, this happens a lot. Like I'm often asked to be on panels and if I'm the blackest person on the panel, like you need to do some more work and <laughs> find some other people. Um, so I, I tend to always do that and say, 
like, okay, that's great. I'm glad that you have my voice, but like, I have a friend who is also in this business and, you know, she, she would be a valuable voice in this community because she has other perspectives that I don't have. So I just think this book deals a lot with that. And it's, and it's also in this like fictional town in Louisiana and the people are from Louisiana. So it's, there's so much I related to, but I think it's just a really interesting exploration of the choices you make and how like one lie one day can change the trajectory of your life. And I think that's what she writes about really well. Like if, even if you take all the race stuff out of it, like what she writes about is how small choices have these unintended ramifications years later. That feels Mm -hmm. like what she wrote about in the mothers too, which both of those books are truly, truly phenomenal. Um, I loved the vanishing half as well. And the mothers is one of my kind of all time favorite. She's such a talented writer and she's so young. She has so many books ahead of her, which is excellent. And normally, like, I hate writers who are super young and talented, but I didn't. <laughs> like, I'm so resentful. Of, like, how could this be your first book and you're this young? But, like, I didn't. I mean, she was so good that I even got past my resentment that she's incredibly talented and super young. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I liked The Vanishing Half. I didn't love it. I liked The Mothers better. I love the premise of The Vanishing Half and everything that you said about, like, sort of what it's about. But I think as a book, as a story, I guess I wanted something different to happen at the end, or I wanted something more out of the story part of it, even though I appreciated what she was doing with the premise and with the colorism and all of that. Like, I thought that was interesting and to learn about and read about. But I think just from like a pure story perspective, I wanted like a different ending. Whereas I remember with the mothers, and I don't 100% remember the, the plot in the mothers, but I felt more closure or something at the end of the mothers. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like, oh, okay, that's the end of a book. I felt a little wanting at the end of the vanishing half a little bit. I mean, it's not a perfect book. Like, and there's, I mean, there's also some like far-fetched coincidences that happen where you're like, ah, really? But I think overall it's still so good. It's just so, it's just, it's just like a delicious novel. Like it's so good. But I I hear what you're saying. Like, I think I actually like this one better than The Mothers, I think. I just, but it's also just me and like my, like my connection to it. You know, like there were just so many things in it that Mm -hmm. I had a personal connection to and like a real deep understanding of that I felt. I just, yeah, I just liked it more. Okay. Can we handle one more round? Can we go fast? Sure. I do want to talk about this book. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm kind of about to steal from one of you. I don't care. Are you about to steal my dark Vanessa from me? <laughs> yes. I'm like, just kidding. Steph, you didn't say it early enough in the show. I'm going to say it now. That's fine with me. I really feel like that this is one of my favorite books of the year. And I might end up having to do a whole separate bonus episode for all the books I didn't get to. But I really want to highlight this book as a novel because I read this pre-pandemic or maybe at the very beginning, March, and it's one of the ones that here we are at the end of the year because I suffer from highlighting the books I read at the end of the year. (laughs) But this is one of the ones I read at the beginning of the year that I'm still thinking about, you know, nine months later. And that is My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell. There's so many good things about this book. Like it's well-written. It's an interesting story, plot, whatever. But what has stayed with me the most... And I realize this is this is controversial and this is not like I'm not writing this in cement or whatever. This is not permanent. But what has stayed with me and what really made me think about is 
this book is about a boarding school student who is 14, 15, and she enters into a sexual relationship with her teacher who they call a professor because it's sort of a professor relationship because it's boarding school. But really we're talking about a teacher and a 15 year old. And what has stuck with me about it is that when you hear that, I'm sure most of us have an immediate reaction to how wrong that is, everything that's terrible about that, illegal about that, and traumatizing and damaging and all of these things, which it is all of those things. But this story really made me think about the complications of this type of relationship. She's writing it It sort of flashes back between her sort of 30-year-old self or 30-something-year-old self and her um, adolescent self. And even as a 30-year-old, she does not lay full blame on this teacher, on this man as having abused her. She does some very questionable things. Now, I... Her actions sort of take place after they've already entered into this terrible relationship, and she does some things to try and keep his attention and and some and some other actions. I'm not going to give any spoilers here. But basically, one of the reasons that this book made such an impact is because I feel like for the first time, I got a true insider glimpse into why these stories are complicated. And yes, of course, I do think that the, there's all kinds of wrongness here. Okay. I'm not like justifying any of it, but reading this book was like, oh, this is, I don't know. It just sort of shifted my black and white thinking on this thing that we can all agree is wrong, but is still very complicated. Now the hang up here is that she's a, the character is a 30 year old sort of writing this and is obviously a 30 year old, very damaged, harmed, traumatized person who does not have a clear understanding of what actually happened. I guess what I'm saying is just reading her thoughts on it from what I think is clearly an author experience. And I don't want to speak into Kate Elizabeth Russell's life here, but this just feels like this was not made up from scratch. I don't know. I don't know how to say it, you know, without giving anything away to be like, this made me think about this situation differently than I ever had before. And that's why to me, it lands on a best book of the year list because this is an icky topic and nobody wants to say, oh, maybe I think about this topic differently because you don't want to think about this topic differently. But also that's what a good book does. It's funny because you and I actually had slightly different takeaways, even though it was also one of my favorite books this year. But I almost kind of struggle with favorite because this is a book that I will never read again. This is a book that made me want to take a shower. His behavior is so sinister and horrifying as you're in it as an adult reading this book. And you're absolutely right in that from her perspective as a 15-year-old, this is a love story. But you alternate that with the fact that this is now a 30-year-old woman who is so profoundly damaged that this is the kind of defining experience of her life that happened to her when she was 15 and has completely altered the rest of her life. And while I think the fact that you're in her mind and you see this quote unquote love story from her perspective is absolutely a makes you think so much more from that perspective. I never once thought this wasn't completely sinister behavior. It was so hard to read. 
so horrifying. And you see very specific grooming behaviors before the sexual relationship starts, which is also when that starts is a particularly kind of traumatizing scene. Mm -hmm. And reading that, I have this very, very vivid kind of picture in my head of what happened. And it's so affecting and so well-written, but so, so difficult. I think what I want to say is that it changed my perspective in that what I would see this relationship on paper, teacher, 15-year-old, I would have thought, well, she doesn't even get to have a perspective. (laughs) She was abused. This is over. Like, I don't even, she doesn't even get to think it's a love story. I don't even want to hear that. That is not a narrative. That is not a valid narrative. She doesn't understand what was happening. She doesn't even get to have a story here. That's how I would have felt about it. And so then when I read it, I think was the first time that I was like, even abuse victims have their perspective. Like they Mm -hmm. get to have their story, I guess. Mm -hmm. A little bit is why it was kind of what made me feel like I almost would have invalidated her perspective. I wouldn't have even let her have it. And now reading this, I was like, oh, this is fascinating. It doesn't mean I don't think that it's not wrong or sinister. I wouldn't have even allowed myself to even think about it. And now I'm like, oh no, she has a, she gets to have a valid perspective of this. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I have lots of thoughts about this book. I had a friend who had a relationship with a teacher who was not that much older than us. He was in his early 20s when we were 16. But having like a ringside seat to that whole situation, I, I understand the perspective of the young girl thinking that this was something. I do have an issue with this book because I don't know if you followed the whole controversy of this book, but nope. there's an author named Wendy Ortiz who wrote a memoir of her experience called Excavation. And the two books are so similar that it's a little frustrating. I'm not accusing the other author of plagiarism. I think that this story happens and this could be my friend's story too. So I think it's it's happens enough. But I, I think what frustrated me about this book is that like Wendy Ortiz's book is a better book and it never had the chance that this book had. And that, you know, has to do with the nature of publishing and who we decide gets to be an author and who gets to gets, you know, and so all of that stuff frustrated me because I think it's not a, it wasn't a bad book, but Wendy Ortiz's is infinitely better. And it's a memoir because it was like this fictionalized, I think, and you know, I think, I think too, that it seems really real. So I, but I, I don't know. I, I have issues with the fact that this was the book that became the book and not some of the other works that are out there that, that are better But again, it's also such a common story that like, it could be anyone's story. And it really could be my friend's story. Like this, the the similarities are so striking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So truly, Stephanie, it's your turn, but you have two minutes. I mean, I think that was my book. I will say one book that I'm reading right now that I really am enjoying, which speaking of your January goal of reading from the back catalog, I'm currently reading A Visit from the Goon Squad, which I had never read and actually is bringing, I know I missed it somehow. And it's actually bringing me a lot of joy for multiple reasons. One of which is the book is amazing. Whether you define it as a novel or short stories, like it's a little bit loosely connected, but is very vignette which I'm very, very into. But also it's a quarantine thing 
where I was unable to go to a bookstore and was patrolling my own bookshelves and picked out this book, opened up the front cover and found a post-it from my grandmother who died a handful of years ago. And it was a book that she had set aside for me and told my uncle to mail to me. So there's a little post-it that I've kept that says, for Steffi, mail to her in Santa Barbara, recommended by Joe Klein on Chris Matthews. Um, (laughs) Because my grandmother, Martha, was uh, the biggest news reader and watcher you'd ever meet in your life up until when she died in her late 90s. And Joe Klein, if anyone has ever read, wrote one of my very favorite books, Primary Colors, which he published anonymously, which was a Romana Clay about the Clinton campaign, the first Clinton campaign, which is a great book. But my grandmother clearly liked Joe Klein and trusted his taste. So she sent me this book and I'm thrilled to be reading it right now. So that's, that's going to make my end of year list. I'm actually really into it. I love to visit to the Goon Squad, but my favorite Jennifer Egan book is The Keep. If you are going to read backlist titles and it's short and I loved that book, The Keep. And I, that's not one of the ones I feel like that gets highlighted by her very often. Goon Squad is like, so people love that one, but I will keep that in mind because I'm going to do what you do and read some backlist stuff in January when there's not so much pressure for the hot new thing. Yes, me and you have two minutes. (laughs) Okay, so I have one other book just came out recently. It was actually a book of the month. It's called The Office of Historical Corrections by Daniel Evans. There's short stories and then like a little novella at the end. And I just, listen, I'm all about Black women and Black women writers. And this book is amazing and tells amazing Black stories. Yeah, and she just like wrote the hell out of this book. Like there's... (laughs) There's no other way to say it. Like, I I really appreciate it. But it's really, it's, yeah, it's, I'm not going to give too much away, but like it, I like the structure of it too, that there are these, these short stories that lead up to this novella. And then like all of the themes kind of come together in the novella and you're like, whoa, holy crap. That was amazing what you did there. So again, Office of Historical Corrections, Daniel Evans. If you remember Book of the Month, you can get it next month for $9 as an add-on. I should write it down because as you know, every single time we meet and we talk about short stories, I'm like, I don't like short stories. And then it (laughs) ends up, I actually love short stories so much. Some of my favorite books of the last years have been, yes, have been short story collections. My favorite book last year, one of them was Friday Black. Amazing. That short story collection is seriously mind-blowing. Then the year before that, I loved Curtis Sittenfeld's You Think It, I'll Say It. Like I- I don't know why I poo-poo short stories in my head. And then I read them and I'm like, short stories are amazing. <laughs> I like this one a lot. And I think you would like it. Wait, are we going to wrap up? Because we have another book we have to talk about, Laura. you got to let me do it. What book is that? <laughs> so Stephanie and I got advanced copies of Laura Tremaine's Share Your Stuff. I'll go first book um, that comes out in February, right? February. February 2nd. It's already available for pre-order. I'm feeling super nervous right now. We're super privileged to get the like advanced copy, but I did want to talk about it because I cannot recommend this book enough. And it's not just because she's my friend and we're a book club and you're listening to this, but like (laughs) it was delightful. Like, 
it's such a surprising little setup. It's really like spending an afternoon or two with Laura and like having these great conversations. But I really, I just want to say very publicly that I'm so proud of your writing. The writing is just like unexpectedly delightful. Like you are a delight, but like it was so easy to read and just so compelling and interesting. And like, I've known you for a long time now, but like just being inside your head a little bit more made, like, I just felt like I, I got even closer to you. And I was like, oh, that's why she does that. <laughs> like, I, you know, but I really, I, I really was able to get a deeper sort of appreciation of your journey to this person that I know, right? And I met you before some of the stuff in the book has happened, but like, I just think it it just gave me a deeper appreciation of the choices that you've made and like the deliberate choices you've made to be the type of woman that you are and have the family that you have. Um, I love the structure of it too. I think that was the most surprising part for me is like, cause I sort of understood what it was going to be like, but then there's so much more than just like these are stories about Laura. So I wanted to say that because I think it's important for people who are listening to know that like, I know her and I know her well. And I still was like, whoa, this book is amazing. I didn't know that. So (laughs) it's interesting because like what Yasmin said is I found it fascinating because on the one hand, it's so intimate and I feel like I know you already fairly well, but it's such an intimate look at your life. And at the same time, it feels exactly like you. And I was also surprised and incredibly thought provoking. And I get teased occasionally about this in book club. I don't journal. I don't, I have never, I don't understand it. I don't know how to do it. And for, I like, I don't get it. And for the first time ever, I was like, I have a notebook. I should actually answer these questions and think about it. And I spent about a week, like I have a journal. I am journaling. This is bizarre. I've truly never done this in my entire life. That's huge. And I cannot wait to send it all to all of my friends. I have a couple of specific friends, very, very, very good girlfriends that I plan on buying the book for, you know, because they're the people that I want to have the conversation with. So we're all, the three of us are going to have to read the book together and then Mm -hmm. have the like, and unfortunately it'll be Zoom, but like, I think I'm going to try and have my little my little girlfriend book club so we can talk about the things that came up for us. And it's so good. I think it'll be a good Galentine's gift. It comes out on the second, yeah. but if you're wanting to buy it for friends like that, I, w- I am going to encourage people when we get closer to buy it as like a fun Galentine's gift in February mm-hmm. and then be able to talk about it a few weeks later or something like that. I think that would make for a nice point of connection, especially in this year when a lot of us have felt dis- disconnected. Hopefully, you know, by the mid spring, the world will be writing itself a little bit. And I think that we're going to have a hard time being like, oh my gosh, how do we do this? Like, mm-hmm. what do we talk about? Right. You know? And so maybe this book will be that for some people to be like, well, okay, let's kind of do a reset with this. Like, let's just start with these questions, you know, as we're trying to learn yeah. how to be friends again in the real world, you know. I appreciate you forcing me to talk about it on the episode today. (laughs) I appreciate you reading it early and uh, giving it a ringing endorsement. I love talking about our favorite books of the year. This was super fun. I always love this episode. We always talk for 1 million hours. (laughs) But I just appreciate you and thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing your thoughts and opinions with my listeners about the best books, because as you know, we all agree. I think that reading is such an important part of life to broaden your heart, 
broaden your mind. It's really a joy in this crazy world is reading. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having Thank you for having us. And you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.